Welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as Witch Please, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And I'm Katie Turner. On this special holiday episode, it's spooky season. What do we fear and why do we fear it? We're unpicking scapegoating, paranoia and subversive narratives. Happy Halloween, Joe, and to our lovely listeners. What film are we chatting about to mark the holiday? We're going to be talking about 1996's The Crucible. Not your average or typical Halloween movie. Not exactly, but, you know, witches. Sure, and also (laughs) paranoia, hysteria, and I guess real-world fears, like the fear of neighbor turning on neighbor. Yeah, not quite horror, but uh, horrifying. Mm, Indeed. So how big a deal is Halloween to you? Uh, Not really. I didn't really grow up as far as I can remember doing things like trick-or-treating or things like this. But now we live in Norway. We will be experiencing Halloween here. And I think it will be slightly different, but I can report back. We'll see how many trick-or-treaters we get, for instance. And you've had some snow already, too. So you have a snowy yeah, we have. Halloween. Although it's yeah. all cleared now. It's been raining. It's just very cold and very wet. Mm. Yeah. So, and yourself? I mean, it's a it's a big deal in the states, particularly if you grow up in the sort of northeast, mm-hmm. where fall is very colorful and pumpkins are abundant. Mm, <laughs> we yeah. would go out east on Long Island every year and pick pumpkins right from the farm. Mm. Get some roasted corn and hot apple cider, <laughs> which is not alcohol. That's not an alcoholic thing in the yeah. U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Apple juice. No, it's not apple juice. It's like cider is, it's really tangy. Right, okay. And it has almost like an underlying, almost like a little fizz to it. That's just naturally there through, I guess it's a fermentation process. Mm -hmm. It's delicious. And it's a real shame that you can't get it in the UK. Mm. It's really, really nice, hot with some bold spices. Okay, But um, at this point, perhaps we should crack on with our Crucible discussion and Mm -hmm. start with our film synopsis. Uh So over to you. Okay. In a world ruled by fear. Judge Hawthorne has condemned 14 more people to the jail and promised hanging if they don't confess. Confess? To what? All it takes to be condemned. Anyone breathe a word and I will come to you in the black of some terrible night and I will bring with me a pointy reckoning that will shudder you. Is to be accused. I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. I saw Bridget Bishop with the devil. Crazy children are jangling the keys of the kingdom. Common vengeance rights the law. I'm not giving my wife to vengeance. The Crucible is a 1996 film directed by Nicholas Heitner and adapted for screen by the playwright Arthur Miller. It has an all-star cast, including Daniel Day-Lewis as John Proctor, Joan Allen as his wife, and Winona Ryder as the chief accuser, Abigail Williams. Based on the Salem witch trials of 1692, but inspired by the Cold War and McCarthyism, the film follows a group of girls in Salem who falsely accuse innocent townsfolk of witchcraft after two girls mysteriously fall into some sort of trance-like state. And they also are wanting to divert attention away from their own unseemly behavior, which we will discuss. The anti-witch fervor gripping the town finally comes to an end after 19 people are hanged. So I have to say, Joe, I found this film more gripping and a lot creepier than I thought I was going to. I read The Crucible in School, as I think 
a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. You also read it in school, right? Yep, that's true. I think that we watched the film also, um, which would have been really shortly after its release, hmm. but I I don't really remember. Either way, the thing that stuck with me was that the Crucible was boring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I don't, I don't know why I held that idea in my head, but that was like the basic idea. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I can only imagine that we weren't taught it in a very engaging kind of way. I don't think that we really dove into the many, many rich themes that are there or the historical situation that prompted Miller to write the play or the one that inspired it. I mean, we must have talked about something, uh, but I just, I don't mm. know. Yeah. Watching it and reading about it for this episode, I realized that our discussion could be massive because there is so much to say. We could do an entire episode just on the play's 21st century resonances. Yeah, so there's a lot of terms that we're going to come through and have already mentioned in our discussion, such as McCarthyism, witch hunts, this kind of thing. So on our website, we'll have a full glossary of terms and lots and lots of resources and links for things to explore the crucible and surrounding ideas more broadly. But we obviously don't have time to cover everything in this episode. Yeah, so I think consider this like a brief historical overview with uh, hopefully some inspiration for some further investigation from our listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are really two different and yet related background dives that we can get into from The Crucible. There's the early colonial historical background to the story, that of the Salem witch trials themselves, and then there's the political background against which Arthur Miller wrote the play. There's so much to discuss from both, as we've already said, that we've decided to split our episode in two. And even then, we're leaving loads of stuff out. The first part, we're going to be talking about McCarthyism and the Crucible. We're going to focus on that background. If you want to hear about the Salem witch trials themselves, stay tuned for part two of our Halloween special. Okay, Joe, start us off on part one of our episode. Take us back to 1945, please. Cue the Wayne's World going back <gasps> in time <laughs> sound effects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let's go right back to 1945. It's the end of the Second World War and Nazi fascism has been utterly defeated and the USSR has made massive territorial gains in Eastern Europe and has a perhaps strained and competitive relationship developing particularly with the United States. And we have a policy of political containment and economical aid that is specifically designed to undermine Soviet influence in Western Europe, which is being implemented by the United States. At the same time, the US is really turning its attention to a concern regarding domestic communism, which is seen as a threat to both national security and to corporate interests as well, because it's antithetical to capitalism. There was a successful prosecution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were prosecuted as Soviet spies, and this lent a kind of a credence to what would become a decade-long politically repressive and at times unconstitutional witch hunt. So a committee was established called HUAC. I think the acronym is slightly odd because they put committee at the end of the acronym, but it was the House Committee on Un-American Activity. Anyway... But this essentially was spearheaded by a senator called Joseph McCarthy. He claimed that he had the names of hundreds of people who were working in the US government and they were members of the Communist Party. And this led to investigations. McCarthy actually 
set up this committee and they went through a series of hearings, inquiries, lots of people were imprisoned, thousands of people were brought before, vehemently questioned, they were required to often share the names of other people they knew and it was almost a no-win scenario in these hearings. Ultimately we get to 1954 when McCarthy turns his attention particularly to the US Army and claims that communists were actively operating within the military. And he even accuses the army's lawyer, Joseph Welch, of employing a communist at his firm. Welch's response to this charge would go down in history. Little did I dream you could be so reckless and so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. It is true he is still with Hale and Dorr. It is true that he will continue to be with Hale and Dorr. It is, I regret to say, equally true that I fear he shall always bear a scar needlessly inflicted by you. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? And it's at this moment it really triggers the downfall of McCarthy. Even as McCarthy is sort of pushed out, the committee in the McCarthy era continues for a few more years still, mm -hmm. and the longer implications of anybody who had been caught up in it carried on for another few decades. It's a really, really devastating period in American history. And I just want to build a little bit on this background that you've provided, Joe, on McCarthyism or the hunt for communists, which was wide-ranging. So even private employers started to subject employees to political tests. And it's important to understand this went beyond the HUAC. People could be targeted over anything that led others to perceive they might have communist sympathies. If you refused to cooperate, you could be jailed for contempt, you could be fired from your job, and or you could be blacklisted, which meant you were barred from working in your profession or industry. For some people, this lasted a very long time. So I'd like to highlight two groups in particular who were deeply impacted by McCarthyism, Black people and Jews. Members of both groups viewed socialist and communist thought through their own social experiences, including oppression and victimization, and found powerful liberative ideology in the discourse. A lot of early 20th century labor movements came from these communities using these ideologies to advocate for themselves. It should go without saying that this does not necessarily equate to Soviet sympathies, but rather was about labor rights and equality under the law. Members of the Black press were targeted for investigation, as were many prominent Black figures, including the baseball legend Jackie Robinson, performer and activist Paul Robeson, feminist Claudia Jones, and the incomparable writer and reformer W.E.B. Du Bois. Robertson and Du Bois both had their passports confiscated by the HUAC for eight years. There's an episode of You're Dead to Me, which is a podcast on Paul Robeson, and it's absolutely a must listen. And that was just a side note, but we will link to it on our website. Highly recommend it. The targeting of Jewish Americans, meanwhile, zeroed in especially in two industries, Hollywood and education. In 1947, the HUAC indicted and imprisoned 10 so-called unfriendly witnesses, which means they would not cooperate. These were known as the Hollywood 10, and six of them were Jewish. They were all blacklisted for well over a decade. Meanwhile, 90% of teachers that were blacklisted from working in public schools were also Jewish. And on a personal note, my grandmother was a teacher, and she told me, this is a story I've heard quite a number of times growing up, when she was, I think, 16 or around there, she was approached by a guy to join a communist group. And this was before HUAC or anything. This is 1930s. 
And the ideology appealed to her. Her father was active in Jewish socialist groups. But what really appealed to her was that the guy was very cute. So she wanted to join, get to know this guy better. Um, But it cost 50 cents to join. And she didn't have that 50 cents. So she said that poverty kept her from being blacklisted later in her life. Mm. So the grossly disproportionate targeting of Jews did not end with those industries. Mm -hmm. Of the 45 civilians suspended by the army in that 1954 part of the investigation that you mentioned, Joe, 41 were Jews. So it's important to note that Joseph McCarthy was known to make openly anti-Semitic remarks. He was known to carry a copy of Mein Kampf around with him. And many of his staunchest defenders were avowed racists and anti-Semites, including Mississippi Representative John Rankin, and the Methodist minister Wesley Swift, both of whom were members of the KKK, outwardly so. It's also important to note that some who cooperated with or worked with the HUAC were Black or Jewish. Mm. But I think it's really hard to make strong moral judgments about them when it's so evident that this particular witch hunt, like witch hunts in general, scapegoated those in a vulnerable social location one way or another. So even if they were prominent individuals, they still were members of these two classes that were vulnerable to the wider society. Mm. And the movement was really successful at spreading fear. And when people are afraid you know, some will cooperate. That's just how it works. Yeah. It's also really important to just drill home this idea of how deeply Christian McCarthyism was because the Red Scare was used as a way for a number of Americans to reinscribe what they wanted America to be. And as Soviet Russia was seen as an atheist state, the opportunity was ripe to claim America as a Christian nation. This is the same time period, I think it's 1956, that In God We Trust replaces E Pluribus Unum as the official motto of America and starts to go on our money. And it is also the time when under God is added to the Pledge of Allegiance. So if you grew up in school before McCarthy, you said the Pledge of Allegiance, you did not say under God. And this becomes much more part of American culture, this strong affirmation of of a Christian America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Arthur Miller had a run-in with the committee himself. Yeah, after he wrote The Crucible, though, right? Yeah, so he was. Mm-hmm. this was in the air at the time. So The Crucible was first performed on the 22nd of January, 1953. So this is the backdrop. And then Miller comes before the committee itself after the censorship of McCarthy. Later on, he also has, I think, a visa or a passport is rejected because he wants to travel to, Mm -hmm. I think, Brussels to see the opening of the the crucible there. So this sticks with him for a while. This is also a period of prolific playwriting by Miller. The play immediately before was The Well-Known Death of a Salesman, perhaps even more famous than The Crucible, and he followed it up with another play that was also quite successful called A View from a Bridge. There were less than 200 performances of The Crucible when it was first shown, but it's proven itself to be, uh, I think there's statements about it being in production somewhere in the world all the time. It's a very, very popular play to do. Yeah, that's the backdrop to the writing and... You've got some comments on Miller's thoughts in relation to his own context. 
Yeah, I do. In 1996, in response to the movie coming out, Miller wrote a retrospective for The New Yorker where he talked about why he had written The Crucible to begin with. He writes that he was concerned about drawing too much attention to himself and being brought up in front of the House Committee of Un-American Activities, which, as you already noted, Joe, did eventually happen. So he didn't want to write a play strictly about McCarthyism. So he turned to the Salem Witch Trials and he used a two-volume study by Charles Wentworth Upham, who had been a congressman from Massachusetts and the former mayor of Salem. This two-volume book titled Salem Witchcraft with an account of Salem Village and a history of opinions on witchcraft and kindred subjects was published in 1867. Such a common thing for Victorian books to have such long titles. <laughs> anyway, Ilya Kazan, who had been a very good friend of Arthur Miller, had been brought in front of the HUAC in 1952, and he named names, and this deeply upset Arthur Miller, and is really what prompted him to head towards figuring out how to write about this event. So he calls McCarthyism a terribly serious insanity, and he writes, In those years, our thought processes were becoming so magical, so paranoid, that to imagine writing a play about this environment was like trying to pick one's own teeth with a ball of wool. I lacked the tools to illuminate miasma, yet I kept being drawn back to it. And so this is why he eventually turns to Salem. He was in particular, I think he was connected to the character of John Proctor. I say character. John Proctor was a real man in Salem. He was one of the accused along with his wife. In reading about John Proctor, Miller said that he felt that John Proctor demonstrated that, quote, a clear moral outcry could still spring even from an ambiguously unblemished soul. So this was something that touched Miller himself because he understood his own moral failings and he wanted to be able to make a moral argument, even if that moral argument was coming from how he viewed himself as a not fully and entirely unblemished soul. So to clear up for those who haven't read the play or watched the film, John Proctor in the play and his wife Elizabeth Proctor have their own farm. They have 300 acres or something, I believe, is mentioned. Mm -hmm. And they have three children. Eventually, Elizabeth is also pregnant again. But Abigail Williams used to work as their maid servant, essentially, in the house until yes. Elizabeth Proctor became suspicious and they removed her from the house. The reason for her suspicions were essentially that John Proctor had an affair with this teenage servant. Still, at the beginning, their first interaction in the play, you can definitely see these elements of he still has some affection, but he, he is kind of repented of this, but obviously still is in this mode. Yeah, this is an interesting element that Miller invents mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for his drama that's different from life and a big part of the reason why Abigail is aged up from 11 to a much older teenager young woman because there was no affair in the actual historical record with an 11 year old girl. It would be hard to have sympathy for Joan Proctor. <laughs> Very hard to have sympathy yeah. <laughs> if that had been the case. I think that that is Miller putting his own moral failing into his drama. So mm -hmm. finding John Proctor to be this man who could who could speak a clear moral outcry while also not being an unblemished soul, as Miller put it. Mm -hmm. He acknowledges in this article he wrote for The New Yorker that he was feeling terribly guilty about his own marital infidelity at mm -hmm. the time when he was researching this to write this play. So 
he revisited the theme so he'd already touched upon it in death of a salesman because the traveling salesman has these liaisons and then also it's a big component again in the play that followed a view from the bridge so he's clearly wrestling with this over multiple plays yeah this is a concern for him Mm -hmm. and something that that upsets him and so i think it makes the character of john proctor in the drama just super interesting because he has these elements of miller himself in the character and so when we hear him speaking out against the witch hunting speaking out against the madness that has gripped the town and we also know that he himself has through his own actions kind of contributed in small parts to the creation of the situation that leads to the madness yeah it's an interesting duality to think about miller reflecting on his own behavior there and his own positioning regarding McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. He also draws from his experience of knowing that this is really an immediate post-Holocaust era. And he thinks about the way that people turned on their neighbors during the Holocaust. Because this is so much of what's going on in McCarthyism is people are turning on their neighbors, they're naming friends, they're naming people that they once had relationships with, and it's what happened in Nazi Germany as well. Mm -hmm. And so Miller writes that he learned from non-Jewish refugees from Nazi-era Germany that there was often a despairing pity mixed with the sentiment, well, they must have done something. And he says, few of us can easily surrender our belief that society must somehow make sense. The thought that the state has lost its mind and is punishing so many innocent people is intolerable. And so the evidence has to be internally denied. And I have to say, reading this quote felt particularly poignant given our current geopolitical situation Mm -hmm. in the world. Um, It also had me reflecting so much on the immediate response after 9-11. He's just saying something so important here, and I think this is part of the reason why The Crucible stays relevant, Mm -hmm. because we are so often, through history, getting caught up in these situations where we are trying to reconcile the behavior of the state Mm -hmm. with what we sort of know to be true at a personal level or at a moral or ethical level, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people end up trying to find some sort of middle ground to deny that the state has completely lost its mind because of this idea that it's intolerable to conceptualize punishing innocent people. And mm-hmm. so this this idea grows. Well, these people who are being punished, they must have done something. Mm. And Miller is saying through the crucible, be wary of that thinking. Be cautious of that thinking. That's very heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think This is exactly why it's quite affecting because there is a system that you have some sense should be fair and just and it just nakedly isn't. Mm -hmm. We have to wonder and question how many systems we have in the world around us that perpetuate this kind of injustice, really. Mm -hmm. We usually close our episodes by asking our guests to pitch us a pairing. And we'll be pitching a thematic scaring more fully at the end of Crucible Part 2, coming to your feed soon. But before we wrap this first episode, is there anything that you would pair with The Crucible and McCarthyism, Katie? Yeah, I would pair the film Trumbo with Brian Cranston, which is about the Hollywood blacklist. And I think does a really, really good job of depicting the emotional toll that this period took 
As always, my disclaimer is don't learn your history from movies, so Hmm. don't take it as a historical document, but films, like all art, are excellent at helping us connect with the emotional heart of something, and I think Trumbo does a really, really brilliant job of that as regards McCarthyism. So, yeah. Fantastic. What about you, Joe? I think I will just, at this point, suggest reading the play or seeing it on stage i've found the experience of following along the text of the play as i watched the film quite rewarding and interesting and you could see different things that were happening and it is just a a very very good play i would say i enjoyed it a lot and it makes you evaluate all kinds of things so yeah check that out support some local artists and actors cool All right, listeners, we'll see you in The Crucible Part 2. However you celebrate your October 31st in snow, in falling leaves, that's my favorite, in sun and heat, hope you have a good one. Now, that's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Style to Kid. As always, you can follow us at GovModPod on our social platforms, but we'd recommend heading over to our website, godsandmoviemakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening. Ha <laughs> ha